and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Lee Bromeyer, Howard M. Holtzman, Professor of Law at Yale Law School, and Daniel B. Listwa, an, a, lit- a litigation associate at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. We will discuss their essay, A Common Law of Choice of Law, which will be published in the Fordham Law Review. So, Lee, uh, Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Great. Thanks. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this paper, even though I honestly don't know much of anything about choice of law beyond teaching Erie for for many years. But I wasn't really aware of the long history of kind of scholarly conflict over uh, choice of law principles that you talk about, among other things, in in the paper. And I really look forward to hearing more about that. But before we get started, I wonder if for listeners who like me don't have a strong background in the area, you could spend a couple of minutes talking about what conflicts of laws are, what it means to talk about choice of law problems, and why these issues present problems to courts adjudicating cases. Most most people can understand really easily what the subject's about if you give them an example. So let's say you have an airplane that takes off in uh, Washington, D.C. at Reagan National Airport. And it it, uh, flies up over the uh, state boundary into another state, and then it goes into another state. And now when it's over, say, Kansas, it has a malfunction, and the malfunction was caused by a defect in manufacture, which took place in, let's say, Seattle, Washington. But the part that was installed in Seattle, Washington, although it was defective, it wasn't made in Seattle, Washington, uh, it was purchased someplace else, so now you've got still a third place. And then the people in the airplane, are they're all from different states as well. They're from 50 different states or maybe some international countries. So how are you going to figure out what law applies? I've actually worked on cases like that. Traditionally or historically, how did courts decide those kinds of choice of law problems? In other words, what did they do when they had to answer the question, what law would apply? And how would which law is going to apply potentially affect the outcome of the case? So I, I can jump in here um, and just start to kind of get into the history of the thing. Taking these examples, you, you have all of these different potential jurisdictions whose laws could apply, and you don't know which one is necessarily going to govern the dispute. And to add to that, it's not just a question of, okay, so here's the dispute. You know, what are the rules for figuring out what law, what law applies? You also have the fact that different courts might have different rules. So you take, the, you take the dispute to a court in Arizona. They might say, you know, this set of law applies. You might take the dispute to some court in New York. Some other law applies. So you have this difficult situation where you have so much uncertainty uh, about how a dispute is going to go and what substan- what, what's the substantive law that's actually going to govern this conduct, this law, this whole transaction, whatever it is. So towards the beginning of the 20th century, there was a Harvard professor, Joseph Beale, who published one of the most influential works in choice of law. And that was centered around what is often referred to as the vested rights theory. And the the, uh, treatise offered basically a bunch of rules that were built on this territorial premise that a state's law was supreme within its own jurisdiction, but didn't extend beyond its borders. 
So basically, the way that you'd be able to figure out the answer to any of these disputes is, well, you figure out, okay, well, where did the relevant thing that gave rise to this dispute occur? Which state territorial bounds was it in? And okay, that's the state's law that applies. And Thiel believes that this territorial conception of choice of law was mandated by the very nature of state sovereignty. So every state had to follow the same rules. So no matter which state you're in, you knew, in theory at least, that, okay, this is how we're going to figure out which law is going to apply to this, to this dispute. We're going to figure out which territory it arose from. Could I interject something? Um, we were asked not only to uh, talk about the academic origins of the subject, but why this matters, how important this is, how much difference it makes to a case. And it's absolutely impossible to overstate the amount of difference this makes. A case is made or broken on the basis of what law applies. Take something as simple as the statute of limitations. One state says that you can have three years to file your case. Another state says you can only have two years. You file after two and a half years or up. Who wins? It all depends on which state's law applies on the statute of limitations. It's the single most important thing you can know about a case, and it's something that very few people who aren't lawyers even think about. Well, so you tell a story in the essay about a sort of dispute among scholars, and to some degree, it seems, maybe among courts as well, but primarily among scholars, it seems like, over what the sort of theory of choice of law would be and how courts ought to go about approaching and deciding these questions. What was the dispute about, or what was the objection, as it were, to the theory proposed by Beale? Beale went on to be the reporter of the first restatement of conflicts of laws um, in the 1930s. But as you kind of previewed in your question, it really wasn't long before his territorial approach really came under fire. Um, so on one hand, that was because of just practical matters. Sometimes these rigid rules that he was arguing for led to some ridiculous um, or objectionable results. People, things that, you know, maybe it was a you know, tort occurred where basically no, one's, no one involved was from Arizona, but because it happened to cross the state line um, at the relevant point, you know, Arizona's law applies. Uh, so you had those kind of kind of pragmatic things, but more fundamentally, what you had in the 1920s and the 1930s, which was when Beale's theory was starting to rise to prominence, was the rise of legal realism. So legal realism strongly rejected this idea that there were these fixed rules that you know could be derived from axiomatic principles about the nature of uh, state sovereignty, and. I should pause here to say that the legal realists weren't particularly polite in their bashing of Beale. Uh, there might have been some rivalry going on between schools, but uh, Laura Coleman has a great book on the legal realism movement, Legal Realism at Yale, um, in which she quotes a poem that just drags Beale. That uh, was composed by Thurman Arnold, the New Deal trust buster from the FDR administration who taught at Yale. Um, and it just, there was, it's just like a pretty humorous poem. I advise people to check it out in the book. Uh, that just makes fun of Beale for having these ideas that things are just derived from the concept of state sovereignty. Dan, I think you're being, I think you're being too, uh, too nice about this. Why don't you just say it outright? These people were nasty to each other. 
They were they did not behave the way we like to think academics behave. They were engaged in personal attacks. They um, they said the most scurrilous things about each other. And uh, it, the field is still this way. It's kind of characterized by an unusual level of rancor, except me, of course. Um. Well, I don't pick on other people, but I have been I have been picked on. Well, so to the extent that the legal realists had these kind of fundamental theoretical objections to Beale's approach, what were they proposing as an alternative? I mean, how did they think that courts should think about these kinds of questions? Well, they thought that uh, the way to modernize the subject was to stop thinking in terms of territorial boundaries and instead thinking about states taking care of their own people. So they said, for instance, if a Kansas person would benefit from the application of Kansas law, then that's a reason to to apply Kansas law. And you can't let somebody from Oklahoma take advantage of Kansas law because it wasn't adopted for them. So they had this system called governmental interest analysis that really boiled down to how you can do the best for your own citizens. And this is very controversial because, uh, as you might imagine, the U.S. Constitution doesn't allow one state to discriminate against the people from another state. Um, But so far, the constitutional status of this principle is, is up in doubt. Why did they think that this was a preferable approach? Was it purely on a theoretical level, or did they think it was going to produce better outcomes as well? Well, both. Um, They thought it was better theoretically because what you could do is, let's say you have two states, A and B, and one one of the parties is from state A, and so you look at state A's law and you say, does state A's law help the A person? And the answer is yes. So you say, ah, so state A has an interest in applying its law. Now you have to look at it from the point of view of state B. Now, the way it turns out, sometimes both states have interests and they want the opposite things. But sometimes they both agree. State A cares about applying its law to this case and state B doesn't care about having its law applied. Hey, isn't that convenient? You can make everybody happy. It's win-win. So this was the big selling point of his theory, that in certain fact patterns, it seemed to work out that you could do what one state wanted without making the other states mad. Under their theory, how do you know what states want in this respect? And is there evidence that states do or don't have preferences about how and when their laws apply? So I think that's the million-dollar question in some sense. So. When the legal realists introduced this critique, there wasn't really a fully formed theory that developed out of the critique until probably the 1960s, when you had uh, Professor Bernard Curry introduce what what Lee was referring to as the government and interest analysis. And one of the things that Curry said was that, well, you could just figure out interests by using what he would refer to as ordinary legal analysis, sort of like the ordinary stuff you do when you're trying to figure out what a statute means or what how to apply a particular law to a particular situation. So we had this just phrase, which was this ordinary legal analysis. The problem is that there's not much in that phrase. The phrase doesn't have much content. And what you're wound up with is kind of back where you're starting. You're like, okay, so I have this general concept that I should looking to the state substantive law and I should be trying to do ordinary legal analysis. 
But what does that mean in the choice of law context? And that's particularly market in the in a context like this where it's pretty esoteric. You don't often have a state's legislature, for example, thinking about these issues when they're drafting a law. And one of the things that Lee has been very influential in pointing out is that what you wind up with is that courts engaging in this, you know, government interest analysis wind up just sort of making metaphysical statements, kind of pulling out, pulling rabbits out of hats with regard to what those interests are. It's sort of like a Rorschach blot. Everybody looks at it and they see what they already think that they see. They don't see it in the picture. Their mind projects their meaning into this meaningless Rorschach blot. As a practical matter, then, when courts try to apply this modern theory of how the choice of law analysis should be done, what do they actually do and to what extent does it provide any help to courts in kind of coming up with consistent, predictable outcomes? I would say that what it does is make the judge uh, dislike the whole line of reasoning and feel entitled to take his or her uh, initial predilections, to take their instincts about what's the right result and find some language someplace in an academic article that seems to support it, and there's, there you have your result. Um, I'm not the only one that thinks this. There's a lot of people who think <clears throat> that choice of law is very result-oriented, that uh, people have preferences of their own about what they think ought to happen in particular cases. Maybe they're sympathetic to plaintiffs, so they like to find a law that favors plaintiffs, or maybe they happen to uh, care more about uh, territorial reasons, so they favor that because that's what they uh, secretly prefer. Um, a lot of people have said that this is just an excuse for judges to do whatever it is that they wanted to do anyway, and of course that doesn't have any predictability to it at all. And one thing that I would add to that is that I think this connects to one of the broader themes of our paper, which, as I take it, I think is judicial transparency and openness about how a judge is coming at its reasoning. Um, I think, so one of the cases that we discuss in the, in the paper is a case out of California, 10 v. Los Angeles trucking, uh, Truck Centers. And that case deals with this tragic accident involving a bus of tourists from China that resulted in a number of deaths. And the court in its reasoning, reasoning has to come up with some honestly fairly offensive things in order uh, to make its decision fit into the modernist framework. So most notably, it has this line saying that California has no more than a hypothetical interest in applying its consumer protection laws for the benefit of Chinese tourists. And those are the kind of statements that interest analysis or the modernist theories kind of force, force courts into making because the framework doesn't admit for more transparent reasoning about what's guiding a particular decision. It doesn't allow you to say, I'm thinking about predictability. I'm thinking about trying to create a more uniform system of risk law. I'm thinking about the cost associated with applying you know, this state's law instead of this other state's law 
or how it would undermine business. Instead, you're just left with this weird interest analysis. And to make it fit, you want to, the, the courts are often engaged maybe in this results-oriented reasoning, but then have to mask it in this kind of stilted language of, of interest analysis. And that, I think, is, at least from my perspective, one of the major issues. I would say that if somebody wanted to sum up what Dan just said, which I very much agreed with, it's that uh, the good old-fashioned rule of law doesn't matter anymore. What matters is uh, who wins the case and where are they from. Well, in some respects, I, I got the impression that even though it was kind of self-professed legal realists proposing this modern or modernist theory of the choice of law analysis, they ended up with kind of a set of principles or a kind of theoretical superstructure that in a lot of ways doesn't seem all that realist, at least not in the way that I understand it. I think that a lot of realists would agree about that. I'm not particularly a realist, but I would say that there's a lot of uh, good things about legal realism that didn't get picked up uh, by this modern theory of choice of law, and it's kind of all the bad stuff that did get picked up. So I have to get into a little more deeply about what Lee and I suggest in this paper is I think that in some ways we're trying to reinvigorate the choice of law with some of the lessons of legal realism, some of the lessons that might have gotten uh, that might not have been fully integrated into the modernist theory. So going back to one of the things that I mentioned before is the way that the modernists said that you should figure out what the interest of a state was is that you should, you know, engage in this ordinary legal um, ordinary legal analysis. And one thing that is very significant that's happening right now is that you have the drafting of the third restatement of conflict of laws uh, that's currently in the work. There's a tentative draft that's being circulated. And one of the things that it does is that it really grabs onto this modernist theory and offers it as a conceptual framework for thinking about choice of law. And I think that that's great in some ways. I think it's really useful to take this often esoteric and difficult to understand topic and offer a clear conceptual framework. And in some ways, I think this idea that what you're doing is trying to engage in sort of the regular thinking about how statutes apply and whether a statute extends to a particular dispute, whether you really do have multiple jurisdictions whose statutes extend to a dispute. I think that's a useful and helpful way of thinking about it and does help domesticate in some sense some of these difficult things. But, you know, as, as we were saying, there, there's often not much there there when it comes to looking at what these statutes or common law rules say about their scope, of what jurisdiction, you know, their jurisdictional extension. One of the things that we try to introduce to this paper uh, is some of the flourishing of conceptual and theoretical that's been happening in the field of statutory interpretation and judicial decision-making more generally in the last 20 years that's inspired by the legal realism movement. So, that's a big part of that is the idea that something like having to interpret a statute isn't just some simple process where the judge looks at the statute and says, okay, here's what it means, but it's much more of a hermeneutic process where you're looking at different sources, you're looking at, say, constitutional law, understanding 
how it interacts. You're looking at other state statutes. You're looking at you're looking at um, you know, substantive policies, and you're taking all this stuff in. You're looking at it together. Uh, and in the same way, we're saying that when a court is trying to figure out the extension of the statute, it's not just a single-minded interpretive process, but it is this broader common law esque process. You're thinking about all the, you can think about other things. You can think about system values, you can think about predictability and try to integrate it into a tool. So I think to bring it back to your question, the one of the lessons of legal realism is this idea that judicial decision making can be messy and it can have a lot of discretion in it. And we're trying to recognize that and give it a place within the conceptual framework. It struck me that this this kind of approach, which you describe in the paper as a, a common law uh, approach to choice of law decision-making, seems especially appropriate given that it seems like actual legislatures and executives are often not very explicit about how they want choice of law decisions to be made, and that maybe if judges are being expected to make those decisions on their own, they ought to be able to engage in kinds of decision-making processes that they're familiar with from other contexts. The, the fact, it's undeniable that legislatures very rarely get interested in choice of law issues. If they can fight their way between uh, amongst one another to figure out what the substance of the law ought to be, they're perfectly happy to go have a drink and go home. They that's enough for them. It's always left up to the courts to figure out whether some particular law applies to some particular multi-state fact situation. Uh, if you have a crime that involves uh, doing three different things, what if two of them occur in one state and one of them occurs in another state? The legislature doesn't think about those things, but the courts can't help it. They get stuck with those problems because they've got to decide cases. And when courts just muddle through and do their best, they read all the relevant precedents that they can find. The uh, lawyers, of course, supply a lot of legal arguments. Uh, somebody reads the academic literature and presents it to the court. And then the judges may do their magic. They, um, as a matter of common law uh, decision-making, they put it all together and somehow come up with a recipe that gets them to a result. And that's what we call the common law, and that's what they're doing in choice of law. I don't think you can see it any other way. Is there any reason to think that judges shouldn't engage in that kind of common law decision-making in these circumstances? I mean, how would people taking a kind of hardline view of the modern approach respond to the kinds of arguments that you're making? Well, that's a very deep jurisprudential question. And there's a whole uh, debate that's been going on for decades, if not centuries, about what judges are actually doing when they decide cases. Are they going to the law, to the past precedents, and picking out principles that already existed so that there was already a right answer in the, um, in the, in the cases and in the statute books? Or are they instead making up new law? The legal realists would have said they sometimes have to make up new laws. Sometimes there are problems that don't already have an answer to it. Um, but there's very, very prominent uh, and well-regarded legal philosophers who say quite the opposite. I would put Ronald Dworkin in this category, and his, his writing is brilliant, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's right. We've actually been engaged in 
an exchange with the current reporter of the third restatement of conflict of laws, uh, Kim Roosevelt. And one of the things that Kim has been doing in the context of the third restatement is introducing a pretty clean way of thinking about, uh, about thinking through the modernist framework. Uh, it's something that he refers to the two-step. And the two-step is essentially this. The first step when you're approached with a choice of law problem is to say, okay, what's the scope of the law? What's the scope of the various laws at issue here? How far do they extend? And once you've figured out whether two laws have scope that extends, two sets of laws have such scope that they both extend to the dispute in question, then you have the issue of priority, and that's step two. Which law should you give priority to? One of the things that we've been saying is that, well, we just don't think you can make it so nice and simple and clean and cut it into these two steps. And I think that this is sort of, a, there's a sense in which this is a broader, uh, a broader criticism of certain frameworks of judicial decision-making. I think that there's kind of a moment right now for these stepwise approaches to judicial thinking. So you can think of Chevron, uh, the concept of Chevron deference as another one of these, where it says, okay, in the first step, you determine whether the law is ambiguous. And if it's ambiguous, then you go and you say, okay, we're going to defer to the agency. And it's kind of two clean steps. And in some sense, our criticism is, well, it's not that clean. Sometimes step one bleeds into step two, and that's okay. And it's better to recognize that there is that bleeding and there is that transit, there is that messy transition between those steps rather than trying to force it into those things. Um, you know, so I, I think maybe in some sense we should have called our paper a postmodern approach to uh, <laughs> approach to choice of law, since what we're taking we're saying is okay, we understand the benefit of the modernist view. But we're deconstructing it and showing how it's not quite as clean and straightforward as you as you think. And I think that the resistance that we've gotten to, I'll say, our postmodern take is that it introduces too much chaos. It does away with kind of that beneficial, you know, clean framework that's offered by saying you do one step, then you do the other. I know that. Part of this paper is an effort to influence the drafting of the third restatement. Uh, I wonder if in closing, you could both talk a little bit about how exactly you hope the paper and your broader project uh, affects the way the third restatement approaches this problem. I think my hope for how we might be able to influence the restatement in its project is to help situate what role the restatement can have within the conceptual framework of choice of law. So if you take our perspective on the two steps, which is to say that in that first step when you're determining scope, it's really not clean process of determining, okay, what does the statute mean? What is its 
that I can determine by looking just at its substance, but you actually do need to look broader and you do need to think about these system values as we refer to them. You have to think about what do we want to achieve as a greater system as a country in terms of resolving these choice of law questions. That once you've read, once you've accepted that, then there's a question of what can we do to help individual judges who are each making these different decisions about the scope of these laws. How do we help them make a decision about the scope that's ultimately going to forward these system values in a coordinated way? And our answer is that well, you should look to what other states are doing. You should try to coordinate with what other states are doing and say, okay, you're answering the question this way, we can do the same thing. And a restatement is essentially a synthesis of what all these other states are doing. And in that sense, it's a perfect way of engaging in this multilateral uh, coordination. So I think what I would like to see in the restatement is acknowledgement both of our postmodern conception of the messiness of legal analysis, as well as the ways in which something like the restatement can serve to bring order to some of that mess. I think um, I would say that the one thing I would like them to do is to be less um, high-minded and philosophical. I think what we need is more common sense in this field. When you've got a way of making decisions that involves multiple steps and a lot of new terminology that the average person, the average intelligent person doesn't understand, then, then I think that we've got a problem because that's going to run down uh, confidence in the judicial system and make people feel that what happens to their own legal rights is just completely arbitrary. So I would like something that would pass the common sense test. Um, that would be my first, my first priority. And I don't think that the current, uh, the current draft does. I would also add to that that I think that you get a nice sense of the creative tension between Lee and I that I think helps fuel our joint paper projects, of which there are a few, which is that I'll be referring to postmodern messiness. And you'll be saying we need to clear out all of this theoretical, theoretical thought and get to the brass tacks of things. Yeah, it's ironic. Uh, he's the practicing lawyer and I'm the uh, uh, egghead. <laughs> it's wishful thinking. Now, don't, don't, cut out, don't cut out my opportunity to plug my book now. I was just going to say thank you so much for coming on the show. And I wonder if you could close it out by telling listeners about your new book project. Okay, this, is, uh, this project was a lot of fun for me. And I hope that it's going to be a lot of fun for the people who read it. If there's any people uh, in the audience who don't know much about contract law yet, or who are maybe just starting law school and are going to be taking contracts, of course, I've been teaching contracts for 40 or 50 years. And as my gift to my students when I retire, I wrote a short book giving away all the answers. And it's called Contracts, the Five Essential Concepts. And it's, uh, it's funny. It's got pictures. It's only 130 pages. And it's only $25. Uh, buy a copy, and it will help you get through your first year in law school. Amazing. It sounds great. I hope when it's out, uh, we can do another interview. I will, I will do that. I will do that. And I hope you, do you teach contracts? 
Uh, I do not. I teach professional responsibility and intellectual property. Okay. Well, I pass it on after you're done with it. Pass it on to somebody who does teach contracts, and I hope they enjoy it because it was meant for people to enjoy. Awesome. Well, again, Lee, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing this excellent paper. Thanks a lot. It was a lot of fun. with any what am i to say to ten i cannot take so many i had best sit out the dance give the other girls a chance there are partners here in plenty just a dance only one just a single dance Come away, away, music is calling With its magic charm and throbbing Through its ringing and singing You lift your feet, follow the chime of the time of the waltz's beat Oh, come away, away, music is playing Linger not vainly delaying Take your partner's choice is free Oh, come away, away, and dance with me. Oh, the will go by, and the dawn will be cold in the sky. Let us capture our joys as they fly. Soon will they fade and die. There's a charm in the thrill. Like the beef of the dogs with their wings. Then away, no delay. Let us dance while we may, for our pleasure will end with death. Oh, come away, away. Music is calling with its magic charm and calling through its ring and sing. Until the night be gone, all